Welcome to the Candida Chronicles with our host, Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. In this podcast, Michael will answer your questions and reveal the shocking truth that the cause of most chronic ailments is not what you've been told. The source is Candida, a yeast overgrowth which, when it becomes systemic, can cause all sorts of seemingly unrelated ailments such as chronic fatigue syndrome and even weight gain. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. And now, without further ado, Michael Biamonte. Today we're going to be talking about something very important which affects a lot of people, uh, even though this is unknown to them. It's the relationship between candida, the adrenal glands, and thyroid function. To start with, the first thing that must understand is that the presence of candida in the body causes the body to produce cortisol, which is a stress hormone. The body does this because candida causes stress on the body due to the inflammation and the toxicity that candida generates. One of the body's instincts in dealing with the inflammatory aspects of candida is to produce cortisol and other types of anti-inflammatory hormones to try to deal with the inflammation being produced by the toxins being produced by candida. In my practice over the years, I've had the opportunity to test many people with uh, candida for elevated cortisol, and I would find that 80% of the people who have chronic candida have cortisol levels clearly above the norms set up by the laboratories. It's also normal to find these same people have cortisol levels that crash and go below normal at different times of the day. So in the typical case of candida, when the person is in the initial phases of the candida infection, it's normal to find cortisol levels above normal. As the person start, begins to uh, endure the candida infection, it's, uh, it's not unusual to find levels of cortisol which at some times of the day are high and other time of the day are abnormally low. Then as the infection uh, continues, and when the candida overgrowth is in a chronic state, it's quite typical to find the person will have cortisol levels that are typically low at different times of the day and no longer showing uh, high spikes in cortisol. I've been fortunate in my practice to have the ability to test people for cortisol using a cortisol test which measures the hormone levels at six different intervals during the day. I consider a valid test for cortisol and adrenal function to be one where a person submits samples every four hours or so for a total of six samples. We've also measured DHEA levels in these same people, and it's very typical to find lower than normal DHEA in the person with chronic candida. So in turn, what this really uh, leads us to in the conclusion is candida eventually leads to adrenal exhaustion. Uh, very interestingly enough, I have patients who will come to me who are also seeing other functional medical doctors for other conditions, and they'll come and, in a consultation and they'll, they'll tell me that in a, 
quite surprised uh, tone of voice that their functional medical doctor has told them that they have an adrenal problem. They have adrenal exhaustion. And I have to kind of chuckle to myself because this is normal. It's, we expect a candida patient to have adrenal exhaustion. This is why we have phase three of our candida treatment. Very typically in phase three of our candida treatment, which deals with energy problems and vitamin imbalances and nutrient imbalances and such, one of the main things we're handling in about 80% of the people initially is, are their adrenal glands. You expect to have the candida patient have exhausted adrenals. It's not a surprise. It's to be expected. Now, this adversely affects your thyroid gland as well because the adrenal glands and the thyroid gland work together. We often described this interrelationship in lay terms as the adrenal glands being the fuel pump of the body, like a car has a fuel pump, and the thyroid gland being more of the spark plugs in the engine. So if the fuel pump is down, the spark plugs don't really have the opportunity to ignite the fuel anyway. So the, the thyroid gland then also ends up suffering. Exactly how the presence of candida adversely affects thyroid function is interesting. And it could be similar, there could be a similar uh, route is shared between the adrenal and the thyroid. We know that in patients who have chronic candidiasis, if you do a tissue mineral analysis on them, you will very typically find they have elevated mercury and copper. Now, the candida does not produce mercury, but candida certainly will allow mercury, which the person is exposed to, to settle and accumulate in the body and make it more difficult for the person to eliminate or detoxify that mercury. Copper being a physiological element is supposed to be in the body. However, in patients who have candida, you find higher than normal levels of copper, typically, in their tissues. Copper is a adrenal suppressant, and copper is also a thyroid suppressant. So in the presence of elevated copper, you will find people with lower adrenal function. Copper may be more interesting to the thyroid function than to the adrenals for the following reason. There is a necessary ratio between copper and zinc and potassium and calcium in order for thyroid hormone to be utilized by the body. Since we find that the average person with chronic candida will have higher than normal levels of copper, lower levels of zinc, higher levels of calcium, and lower levels of potassium, this interferes with the body's ability to functionally use thyroid hormone. I'd like to, at this time, give you a brief uh, explanation and some background into thyroid function so that you can better appreciate how candida influences this. And what I'm going to tell you now in the next... 10 minutes, you can find information regarding the same data on my website, www.health-truth.com. If you go into the section of articles, which uh, would be, I believe what first gets you there is if you go into archive, 
of the articles and then look specifically for the category of thyroid function. The data that I'm going to give you here over the next couple of minutes is not known by your medical doctor. Your medical doctor might have studied some of this when he was in school, uh, when he was studying endocrinology. It's possible he might have come across this data. It depends on the, the, the textbooks that were being used. If your medical doctor studied from Guyton's book of physiology, then he did come across this data. And I want to just correct myself here. Um, the articles that pertain to thyroid on my website are, in the, if you go to the top bar, our program, and then on the left side, you'll see a link that says health articles. And if you click on that link that says health articles, on the right side, you'll see different subjects come up and you'll see thyroid problems then come up as one of the subjects. Most doctors and patients are familiar with thyroid to the degree that they're familiar with thyroid hormone levels in the blood. Typically, what a doctor considers regarding thyroid hormone levels, he looks to see if TSH is high, low, or normal. A high level of TSH, let me define TSH for you, TSH is thyroid stimulating hormone. This is a hormone made by your anterior pituitary gland and its job is to stimulate the thyroid to produce T4 and convert the T4 to T3, which are the active forms of thyroid hormone. So it's thought in medical interpretation that if TSH, which is the thyroid stimulating hormone is high and above normal, it is because your anterior pituitary gland is trying to stimulate your thyroid gland to make more hormone because the hormone is either too low or the body is having difficulty utilizing that hormone. Uh, most doctors are comfortable if they see the TH TSH high and the T4 and other thyroid hormones low because then this is a obvious scenario where the thyroid gland needs more stimulation by the anterior pituitary to produce the TSH to tell the thyroid to make those hormones that are too low to bring them up to normal. The doctor is less comfortable when he sees a high TSH and a normal T4 or T3 because he, he understands from that that the pituitary gland is trying to tell the thyroid to make more hormone, but since the hormones are normal in the blood, he would question himself and say, well, why is it trying to do that? In the last scenario, if the TSH is high and the thyroid hormones themselves are high, here you have a simple situation of a hyperthyroid where the anterior pituitary is telling the, the thyroid to make more hormone than is needed. Typically, when a person has chronic hyperthyroidism, this doesn't occur and you'll find the TSH perhaps low because the thyroid is not needing that stimulation to tell it to make extra hormone because it apparently already has extra hormone. This is the range where most medical doctors are comfortable, even endocrinologists. I had a patient once tell me that 
they were seeing some top endocrinologist on Park Avenue. And when I spoke to the gentleman, his uh, knowledge of thyroid function was about as far as I'm taking you right now. So the fact that the person's an endocrinologist or he's a leader in his field in endocrinology means absolutely nothing. The odds are 95% of the chance that he will know nothing of what I'm about to tell you. However, as I said, you can find this data on my website. And if you want to uh, really dig in, you can also find this data in the book of Guyton's Physiology, which is a standard physiology book taught in many medical schools. This is where I got this data from, was from Guyton's Physiology book and also from my work with Dr. David L. Watts from Trace Mineral, Inc. So at this point, we're gonna go into what the doctor doesn't know about thyroid function. And what the doctor doesn't know about thyroid function is that simply having normal levels of thyroid hormone in your blood mean nothing as far as thyroid function goes. Now notice I'm saying function and not the thyroid hormone production. Your doctor knows about thyroid hormone production via the pituitary gland and the thyroid gland as I've previously stated. He does not know very much about thyroid function, which is what we're gonna look at more now. When the thyroid hormones leave the bloodstream, particularly let's say T4, which is the major thyroid hormone, it's called thyroxin, the body converts T4 into the more active, more potent form, which is T3. This conversion is done using a series of vitamins. Isn't that a surprise? Vitamins and trace minerals, something your doctor probably heard about once when he was on the subway or maybe reading a book about nutrition in medical school, but has probably since then done nothing with that subject. The elements that are involved in this conversion are zinc, vitamin B6, selenium, and vitamin B1. These are some of the primary nutrients involved in the conversion of T4 to T3. Now, when the body has converted the hormone to T3, the more active form, T3 then enters your cells and it enters a chemical process which is called the electron transport chain. If those of you who remember your high school chemistry, you'll remember the electron transport chain and the Krebs cycle are the two energy producing cycles in your body. It's the purpose of the electron transport chain to deliver um, certain chemicals into the cell so that the Krebs cycle, also known as the citric acid cycle, can produce energy in your cells. I don't want to get people confused or lose you by giving you too much of that type of data. For those of you who remember this, that's great. For those of you who don't, who are so inspired, you can look it up. Uh, for those of you who are not inspired, you don't need to know this. What you simply need to know is that the thyroid hormone enters a cycle of energy production in your cells in order to do its job, and that's all you particularly need to know. When the thyroid hormone is entering the cell, there are receptor sites in the cell, and what a receptor site does for a hormone is literally as it would be uh, inclined, as you would look at the word, a receptor site, 
It's a site in the cell that receives the hormone. You can think of this as a doorman that sits in the opening of a doorway in each cell to receive the hormone, usher it in so it can do its job. These receptor sites are also, once again, based on vitamins and minerals. What a surprise. In Guyton's physiology book, Guyton had written quite many years ago that potassium, in some way that was not yet fully known, sensitizes the cells to the effect of thyroid hormone. He also wrote that calcium also in ways not fully understood, desensitizes the cells to the effects of thyroxin or T3 or thyroid hormone in general. So what Guyton was saying, he was establishing at this point a mineral balance or a mineral ratio for us to understand cellular utilization of thyroid hormone. And this balance he was giving us was calcium to potassium. He was telling us that potassium increases your cell's sensitivity to thyroid hormone, which means that potassium helps the thyroid hormone to work, and that calcium desensitizes the thyroid hormone, or it blocks the thyroid hormone from working. Uh, through the research of Dr. David L. Watts, we know that calcium aligns with copper, and zinc aligns with potassium. There are other researchers who also found that zinc and copper were highly involved in the same way as potassium and calcium as cellular receptors for thyroid hormone. Dr. David Watts has delineated and explained and outlined this, I, I think, with more clarification than anyone else, which is why I mentioned him. But his work has been substantiated by others. There, there are other research papers you can look up that talk about zinc and copper ratios aligning that with thyroid hormone utilization. Now notice I'm using words like utilization and function. I'm not referring to hormone production, which is the first story, the first part of our story. So... From what we've learned so far, we, to summarize this, calcium and copper block the thyroid hormone's activity in your tissues or your cells. So if you have normal levels of thyroid hormone in your blood, but you have elevated levels of calcium and copper in your tissues, the calcium and copper will block the activity of your thyroid hormone. If you have zinc and potassium at ideal levels in your cells, and the zinc and potassium ratio are in correct balance with calcium and copper, then your cells and your tissues are going to be better able to utilize thyroid hormones. Thyroid hormone will work optimally in a person's body who has the correct balance between calcium and potassium and zinc and copper. So as far as uh, thyroid hormone working correctly, and speeding up your metabolism to produce heat and energy as it's supposed to, potassium and zinc are the good guys, calcium and copper are the bad guys. 
Now, inversely, if you are suffering from Graves' disease or some disease of hyperactivity of the thyroid, the reverse would then be true. Calcium and copper would be the good guys, and zinc and potassium would be the bad guys. Now, it happens to be, if we come back around here to candida, it happens to be that candida has the tendency to elevate calcium and copper in the body and not elevate zinc and potassium, but it does elevate calcium and copper. I would like for a moment to reference the podcast that we did this past Tuesday where we discussed candida and estrogen. Interestingly enough, estrogen is the friend of calcium and copper. You see. Calcium and copper are friends of estrogen, so they go in hand. As I was discussing the other day that estrogen raises calcium and copper, and copper is also uh, estrogenic, the same thing holds true of candida. Candida is estrogenic, and estrogen likes candida, and vice versa. Estrogen raises calcium in your tissues, and estrogen will tend to raise copper. Copper is involved in the synthesis and release of estrogen from the ovaries, so copper is an estrogenic hormone. One thing that your doctor may know of this is that estrogen tends to block thyroid hormones and vice versa. Thyroid hormones have been given as treatments for migraine headaches because when they're estrogen-induced, the thyroid opposes them. Thyroid hormones have been given as treatments for fibroids and for other cystic growths because, again, it opposes estrogen, which tends to try to formulate those growths or stimulate the growths. So here we're starting to see the playing field, folks. We're seeing this kind of come about. Is that kind of like a football game? We've got on one side of the field, let's say we've got the visiting team, and the visiting team consists of estrogen, copper, calcium, candida. These are all the things that are going to block thyroid hormone. And on the home team, let's say hypothetically we have antifungal substances, which will block the candida. We have zinc and potassium, which encourage the thyroid hormone utilization in your cells. And we have our quarterback, a new player we're going to introduce into the game, progesterone. Progesterone balances estrogen. It somewhat opposes estrogen. And progesterone is a synergist to thyroid hormones. Progesterone relates to zinc. Estrogen relates to copper. Progesterone tends to help the storage and utilization of zinc. And progesterone is going to tend to help raise zinc and raise potassium in your tissues, which goes back to helping thyroid hormone to work. So here's our playing field that we see now. And if you look at it from the viewpoint of the playing field and the football game, it kind of could make more sense to you because you can compartmentalize the estrogen team versus the progesterone team. And you have your team here 
which is trying to slow your thyroid down and your team over here, which is trying to speed it up. So by all this biochemistry that I'm giving you here and this physiology and endocrinology, you can see that candida is anti-thyroid. So in the presence of candida, this shift takes place where you become more estrogen dominant, you become perhaps more copper and calcium dominant, and you become less zinc, progesterone, and potassium dominant, let's say, and therefore your thyroid gland suffers. Your thyroid metabolism, I should say, correctly suffers. Your thyroid gland may be producing adequate amounts of thyroid hormone, but your body is certainly not going to be utilizing that hormone correctly. Now, you go to your doctor with this information, and he, you tell him you heard this nutritionist talk about this, and he looks at you, kind of stares at you, and frowns. Uh, doesn't really say much. You leave the office thinking that um, you embarrassed yourself. However, the doctor may decide to investigate this. And if he goes online and he investigates this, he's going to find a couple of little tricky, useful tools that you can use. It costs you virtually nothing. And you can use this to substantiate this data that I'm giving you. First thing you can look for is a questionnaire for thyroid function. You can probably just Google questionnaire for thyroid function and you'll come up with a series of yes and no questions, which if you score really high, will tell you that there's a possibility you have a thyroid problem because you're in, in agreement, let's say, with a lot of the symptoms of low thyroid. Forget about your blood work now. We don't care about your blood work right now because your blood work could say that your thyroid hormones, your TSH is all normal, so that we don't care about that because that, that, that's not what we're talking about. That's the first half of thyroid function. In the second half of thyroid function, we're talking about functionality and we're talking about the end result. In the first half of thyroid function, we're talking about the potential of thyroid because we're looking at the hormone levels in your blood. Again, the hormone levels in your blood are the potential of thyroid function. They have to get into your cells and do the job they're supposed to do in order to then function. So having them in your bloodstream is simply showing you there's the potential there. Having them get into your cells and do their job is having them actually function. So we, you're, you could have the questionnaire, you could look this over, you could see that you score poorly on the questionnaire, meaning you already have a lot of symptoms associated with low thyroid. Now you can get your body temperatures checked. This is probably one of the most reliable ways to understand your thyroid function. Checking your body temperatures is more reliable in checking your thyroid function than is your blood test. Because your blood test could all be normal, showing the potential is there, but in actual fact, your cellular receptors, meaning your copper, potassium, your zinc, your copper, all these things could be imbalanced, and the thyroid hormone may not be working very well in your cells. And if it's not working and doing its job in your cells, you'll have the symptoms of low thyroid. One of those symptoms will be low body temperatures. Uh, 98.2 for an underarm, which is also called axillary temperature, would be considered a, a good temperature that's decent. 98.6 is the correct temperature under your tongue. 
For thyroid function, if you have a low level, if either under your tongue or below or under your armpit, if it's below 98, you'd be considered suspicious of having low thyroid. If it's below 97.8, most doctors in the uh, functional medical field will pronounce you as having low thyroid. I have patients who have, it's typical that they have body temperatures below 97. We have people who are in the 96s and the 95s. These are people who are absolutely diagnosable as hypothyroid, even though their blood levels are normal. That's because these people functionally have low thyroid. From a disease point of view or a pathology point of view, the insurance companies will recognize you as being hypothyroid if your blood levels are poor, if you have that high TSH, if you have that low T4. From a functional standpoint, the doctor or practitioner that's trying to get you well isn't going to worry about that nonsense. He's going to look at your body temperatures, and he knows that if your body temperatures are below normal, your thyroid function is incorrect. So we're looking at function, and in looking at function, a way we determine or prove the function is by looking at your body temperatures because the end result of thyroid activity in your body is the production of heat and energy. So if, you're, if we can substantiate using an easy uh, measuring method that your temperatures are below what the, what's considered normal, we know that's the fault of your thyroid metabolism, thyroid activity, so to speak, and we know that you have a functionally low thyroid. Skin iodine absorption tests are also of use. It's been found that if you place iodine on your skin, let's say you take a drop or two and you make a, a circle the size of a quarter or a nickel, if that iodine remains on your skin for a full 24 hours, the odds are is that your thyroid function is okay and your iodine levels are okay. If the iodine... Uh, stain that you put on your skin disappears before the 24 hours, the possibility is there that your body is sucking that iodine through your skin into your system to aid your thyroid because your thyroid is not functioning correctly. This is another little trick your doctor might investigate if he goes online and wants to learn more. <clears throat> there is a book, probably the original book on this entire subject, as uh, a book about hypothyroidism, The Unsuspected Illness, written by a Dr. Broda Barnes. Broda Barnes was the first doctor to come out and actually recognize that patients who had low body temperatures and who had symptoms of low thyroid should be treated. Broda Barnes was the first to actually say that these are people who do have low thyroid function. This came across uh, with some controversy because he was talk talking about people uh, who have normal levels of thyroid in their blood. So this is kind of bucking up against mainstream comfort, what the doctor is comfortable with in their knowledge. But it certainly is true. A book then that followed that, which gives us more data about why this happens, uh, was written by Dennis Wilson. It's called Wilson Syndrome, 
Wilson was the first to really document the problems with T4 and reverse T, T4 and T3. Now, uh, this is somewhat similar to the data we went over, but there's some additional things here to know. The body will make a hormone called reverse T4. What it does is it takes the hormone that it's making and it puts some of it in storage for times, let's say, of hormone fathom or of, of where it thinks it needs that hormone, thinking it's going to take the hormone back and reuse it. The problem becomes where it does not do that. There are people who will make excessive amounts of this reverse T3 to the point where they don't have enough to function. Interestingly enough, it was found in his book that one of the greatest stimulators of the body making too much of these reverse thyroid hormones is stress. And the particular trigger is cortisol. So we go right back to our candida as the basis of the problem. If, if the candida is present, the candida is causing excess cortisol to be made, that excess cortisol then stimulates the body to make these reverse thyroid hormones, which, as I said before, are like thyroid hormones that you put in your closet in case you need them on a rainy day, but then you forget what closet you put them in. I think this is a good way to describe this. If you were to read the book um, by Dennis Wilson, Wilson Syndrome, this is what you're going to come away with eventually, is the reverse thyroid hormones that he talks about that the body naturally makes are literally like you taking hormones, putting them in your closet to save them for a day where you may need them, and then you forget what closet you put them in or forget how to get them out of the closet again. And this is caused by the production of cortisol, which stimulates the production of these reverse thyroid hormones. Now, if your body is producing an excessive amount of these reverse thyroid hormones, it's said that you have Wilson syndrome. Wilson syndrome is treated in two ways. You can go to a traditional doctor. Uh, well, let, let, me, let, me, let me qualify that. You go to a traditional doctor who knows about Wilson syndrome. If you go to your average MD and you talk about Wilson syndrome, again, he's going to look at you and he's not going to know what you're talking about. And that includes our Park Avenue endocrinologists. He's not going to know what you're talking about, the odds are. However, you can go to someone who's qualified, let me say, in treating Wilson syndrome. And normally what they do is they treat you with T3, which is the active thyroid hormone. And they, have, they put together a, a somewhat rigorous plan or scheduling of you taking that T3, which many people have found to be difficult. The optional treatments that exist for this or you find a nutritionist, a clinical nutritionist, someone like myself who's familiar with this, who's familiar with working with the trace minerals and the vitamins that are involved in this, and we rather easily can reverse this problem by getting your minerals in the right balance because ultimately the same nutrients that are involved in turning this around are those same bunch of nutrients I mentioned before that were involved in T4 to T3 conversion. It's again, zinc, vitamin B6, selenium. These are the key nutrients that are involved in converting 
T4 to T3, and they also play a very important part in the, the conversion of the reverse thyroid hormones back into the active form. So here we have a mess that I'm, just, I'm explaining to you. This is a mess of thyroid function, which all can be caused by candida, simply because candida stimulates the body to make cortisol, the stress hormone. And when there is an excessive amount of the stress hormone cortisol, you have an excessive amount of thyroid confusion. Now, the thyroid and adrenal glands very typically need to be treated together. Because, as I said earlier, one could be likened to be the fuel pump and the other could be likened as being the uh, spark plugs in the car. It's been found that when you treat thyroid without treating adrenal and vice versa, you don't get such a good result. In some cases, people feel really bad when you, when you do this. I would say that it's an individual thing. I, I can't say that you can absolutely predict dire consequences if you just treat thyroid as opposed to adrenal or whatnot. But when you do most functional tests, you will typically find if the adrenals are low, the thyroid is low and vice versa. You will see out on the market amongst the companies that make um, nutritional supplements that are meant to be distributed by health professionals only, you will see that they typically make thyroid and adrenal combination products. Products that have substances that both aid the thyroid and adrenal at the same time. This is no coincidence. This is why this occurs. To properly understand your thyroid and adrenal uh, function, what I recommend the person do, this is typical in my practice, we recommend that you do an adrenal test, which consists of measuring your cortisol and DHEA levels at least six times a day. Four times is okay. Six times is better. You want to see how your adrenal hormones are doing within their circadian rhythm. The word circadian refers to your day-night cycle. Very typically, people who work at night and sleep during the day have very bad hormone problems. Sometimes those hormone problems are not unraveled until they change that work schedule. So you want a circadian adrenal hormone test. You want to measure your cortisol and your DHEA at least four to six times over a 24-hour period. You want to take your body temperatures. The website of Dr. Rind, R-I-N-D, is very good for information on taking your body temperatures. Uh, Dr. Rin, I believe, has the best, comp most comprehensive body temperature uh, taking approach. And this will help you understand your thyroid function by seeing how much heat you're creating. The skin iodine tests, one of them is called an Ioply test. You can probably buy these on HealthWave, and you can certainly buy them online in health food stores. It's a simple skin iodine test. A tissue mineral analysis is very necessary when you're dealing with, this, with these matters because you have to have some kind of accurate way to understand your mineral balance in your body. If you work through Trace Elements Incorporated in Texas, which is Dr. David L. Watts' laboratory, 
when you do the tissue mineral analysis with Dr. Watts, they look at all of your trace minerals, all of your beneficial macro and micro minerals. So they're looking at calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, and all the, the trace minerals like zinc and copper and whatnot. And they're also looking at all your toxic metals, which could interfere with thyroid function. Examples of those would be arsenic and mercury. Notice I haven't mentioned the blood test in here. A blood test is probably the least that you would need because the odds are is your doctor has already done blood work on your thyroid and it's probably already come out to be normal. If your doctor is sharp, he will recognize that if your TSH is tending to be in the normal range but close to the bottom of the normal range and if it typically hangs there, he will suspect that you may have a thyroid problem just based on that. And he can then graduate onto doing these other more sophisticated tests to understand the thyroid function a bit better. As far as the adrenals go in the tissue mineral analysis, you will see that the levels of sodium and potassium will relate to adrenal function the levels of calcium to potassium will relate to thyroid function. And of course, the zinc-copper ratio also then relates to thyroid function. Well, I hope I've given you some insight into this problem. This is something that as a, as a candida specialist, I assume I'm going to need to handle everyone who comes to me. Now, that's not always true, or it's not always true to, to the extreme degree that I portrayed it here, but it is uh, true 80% of the time. Any patient who comes into my office who's suffering with candida, and usually the patients who come to me are some of the best you can find anywhere. Uh, my patients are the most knowledgeable. They've done their research. And they will typically already know these things coming in. They'll come in and say, you know, I'm pretty sure I have candida. I'm pretty sure my, my thyroid is down and whatnot. So this is something that we assume that if you have a candida condition, you can assume your adrenal glands and your thyroid are not operating correctly. And that's why the candida is causing energy loss in your case. The candida is not necessarily causing energy loss in your case only because the candida is a stress on your immune system and a stress on your body. It's because of the effect that candida has on your adrenal and thyroid glands. So there you have it, folks. I hope this has been interesting for you. I hope this has clarified uh, this subject matter. Again, as I was just saying, my patients who are probably listening already probably know all about this. So for them, this is, not, this is just a review. And I, I will go on, I just want to reiterate again that I feel that my patients are probably the most knowledgeable people, the most knowledgeable lay people in the world. Uh, the people who tend to come to the Biamonte Center are people who have done a lot of research. And in some cases, I will put the knowledge of my patients up against some of the health practitioners out there. I, I know for a fact I can count and name out loud if I wanted to some patients I have who I feel know more than quite a few of the health practitioners I've bumped into in my travels. They probably would eclipse these people with their knowledge. 
And their knowledge was born from survival and from necessity. Because no one else was helping them. No one else, in many cases, even understood what they were talking about. And they had to do the research themselves. And I commend them for that. Well, thank you for joining me today. We look forward to having another episode of the Candida Chronicles coming up next Tuesday. And I also want to take this time to announce the coming of the book, the long-awaited book, which will be called the Candida Chronicles. This is going to be my first book on on Candida and Candida treatment. We are looking for the book to be released hopefully sometime around March of 2016. It's going to be a series of books. The first book will be the Candida Chronicles, and we may have five books coming out afterwards, which will specialize in some unique areas of Candida. So it it may end up being a five to six book series. In the Candida Chronicles book, there will be a um, application, let's say, for lack of a better word, that will be probably in the back of the book that you can rip out and mail in, where you can receive weekly updates on my Candida research that will be sent to you as someone who owns the book. So we will announce more about the Candida Chronicles book as the time passes and as we get closer to the release date, I will keep you informed. Again, this is Michael Biamonte, clinical nutritionist. Thank you for joining me today and we hope to be with you again Tuesday. That's a wrap for this episode of the Candida Chronicles featuring Michael Biamonte, certified clinical nutritionist. Michael holds a doctorate of nutropathy and is a New York State Certified Clinical Nutritionist. He is a professional member of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists and of the American College of Nutrition, and he's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212 587 2330